This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, certainly you've been seeing what is unfolding over in Afghanistan. What a mess we are in and right on the cusp of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Well done. It's always good to put progressives in the White House when it comes to the threat of terrorism. Now you have al-Qaeda talking about regrouping and launching attacks on the United States. You've got the Taliban in the presidential facilities and the president running for his life and people swarming to the airport to try to get out desperately before uh, all, you know, bedlam breaks loose, shall we say. It's a complete mess, a complete mess. And even the New York Times is saying this is on Biden, not that Joe Biden takes any credit for things. I mean, we had that one photo of the president sitting in front of a video screen at Camp David. Hey, you might want to actually lead the country right now. I know that That's inconvenient because this is a really good time to take a vacation and everything. But he's sitting there in this room watching video screens of various intelligence officials. And people were up in arms yesterday on social media saying, why are you outing these intelligence officials with these pictures? What is going on? The incompetence of this administration. Meanwhile, you have the president issuing a statement on Saturday blaming Trump. Oh, (laughs) who didn't see that one coming? He says, when I came to office, I inherited a deal cut by my my predecessor. He complained about Trump negotiating a deal, quote, that left the Taliban in the strongest position militarily since 2001. Well, that's really not what you said recently. There's a lot that President Biden said recently. For example, this was on July 11th via Politico, hardly a conservative organization, media organization. And the headline is Biden on Afghanistan, not my problem. That doesn't sound like Trump made me do it, does it? As the Taliban blitz across Afghanistan and U.S. officials scramble to assess just how quickly the government in Kabul could fall, President Biden is recalibrating his message to Americans, where he once insisted that two decades of U.S. backing had left Afghan forces capable of defending themselves. Keep that in mind. Biden and his aides have shifted to a more cold-blooded mantra, if they can't, that's not our problem. And he said last week he doesn't regret his decision. He points out all the money the U.S. has spent, more than a trillion dollars, and has lost thousands of its own troops to train and equip Afghanistan's military. And he says Afghan leaders have to come together. They've got to fight for themselves, fight for their nation. Let's go back to what President Biden had to say on July 8th, because If there were ever a line that will come back to haunt him, it's going to be the line about the helicopters and the comparison to Vietnam. But I want to go back to July 8th, President Biden talking about this decision. This is cut one. Is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. 
because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. Is it, can you please clarify what they have told you about whether that will happen or not? That is not true. They, so, did, not, they didn't, did not reach that conclusion. So what is the level of confidence that they have that it will not collapse? The Afghan government and leadership has to come together. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government in place. Does that sound like this is Trump's fault and I have to follow in Trump's footsteps? Trump didn't actually achieve the withdrawal because there was this sense, obviously, under the previous administration that certain conditions had to be met before we would take that final move. And pardon me, not a military person here, but I don't understand this dumb idea of telling your enemies when you're going to leave the country after being at war for 20 years. Who does that? Why would you do that? And I know there were negotiations going on with the Taliban, even under Trump, but the conditions that they were looking for were not met. And so nothing ever came of it. But I don't understand this. You know, we're in this protracted war, but as of August 1st, we're gone. Like, what do you think is going to happen when you say that? You think the Taliban's going to go, well, we better just sit tight until August 1st, or I'm just using that as an example, and, and then everything will be just fine. I mean, give me a break. Who Who is making these boneheaded decisions? Oh, yeah, President Biden. Now, recall what he said on the 8th when asked whether his decision would be comparable to what happened in Vietnam. Listen to this. This is cut two. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling? None whatsoever. Zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy. Six, if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the the North Vietnamese army. They're not not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comfortable. So the question now is, where do they go from here? That the jury is still out. But the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. It's Trump's fault. Just remember, it's Trump's fault. It's never Biden's fault. It's Trump's fault. The the, the most hilarious thing here is reading this piece in the New York Times by David Sanger. Final failure in Afghanistan is Biden's to own. This came out yesterday. Rarely in modern presidential history have words come back to bite an American commander in chief as swiftly as these from President Biden a little more than five weeks ago when he said there's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy of the United States in Afghanistan. Then he dug the hole deeper and added the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. You heard it just there. And this writer says on Sunday, the scramble to evacuate American civilians and embassy employees from Kabul unfolded live on television, not from the U.S. embassy roof, but from the landing pad next to the building. And now that the Afghan government has collapsed with astonishing speed, the Taliban seems certain to be back in full control of the country right as the anniversary of the September 11th attacks is commemorated. Incredible. Mr. Biden, the New York Times says, 
The New York Times will go down in history fairly or unfairly. They have to throw a caveat in there. As the president who presided over a long brewing, humiliating final act in the American experiment in Afghanistan. But fear not, because it's been announced that the president will be coming out and speaking to this within the next few days. Right. He's probably he probably has no idea what's even going on. Can you imagine the scrambling behind the scenes that is likely taking place over all this? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? When even the leftist media is blistering you with their attacks, you got a problem. Who's going to who's going to hold your water here and say, oh, no, 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 they were justified. Oh, no, they were justified. There's a piece over at USA Today. Taliban's Afghanistan takeover deals a harsh blow to Biden's America is back foreign policy promise. I'm telling you, it's kind of like no new taxes all over again. We'll see if the media plays it fairly and circulates that really horrible section of his quote from July 8th about the helicopter landing on the roof of the U.S. Embassy. And oh, no, it's nothing like Saigon. Oh, by the way, as uh, National Review points out, there's a headline over on the Politico Playbook newsletter, Joe Biden's fall of Saigon. You have the Financial Times declaring Joe Biden's credibility has been shredded in Afghanistan. And NBC reported potential Al-Qaeda resurgence in Afghanistan worries U.S. officials. So everything that Biden insisted would not happen is happening. Can I just say also, when he is insistent upon trying to lay the blame on Trump, he was perfectly capable of undoing lots of good things that Trump did, wasn't he? He was able to open the border completely and take no responsibility as thousands of COVID sufferers go across our border and are, you know, put into various cities throughout the United States, primarily in some of these red states, according to some reports. He was able to do that. He was able to make sure that gas prices went through the roof, you know, killed the Keystone XL pipeline. He was able to make sure that inflation went through the roof and killed jobs and now threatens the freedom of Americans over COVID-19. Yeah, he's just been tremendous. But he just couldn't do anything about Trump's Afghanistan policy. It's funny how you can't do what you won't do. There's more to come. We'll be back. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at Janet Mefford. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, Joe Biden, not such a great president, is he? Well, we could have told everybody this. In fact, we did tell everybody this before he was ever elected. Where do you even begin with this man? I mean, you can talk about his compromised mental states. We can talk about that. We don't know exactly whether or not he's ever been diagnosed with dementia or if he's just getting senile because of his age. But clearly the guy is out of it. He says ridiculous things. He loses track of his thoughts. He makes ridiculous gaffes as he has throughout his career. But worse now, he headed off in the other direction last week when he was trying to get into the White House. He went the wrong way. So, you know, you have the Secret Service chasing after him and you have video of this. The guy's a disaster just in terms of his feebleness. And I'm not trying to be mean by saying this, but we all see it. We all see it. Can we not invoke the 25th Amendment at this point? I know they wanted to do it with Trump, who is completely fine from a brain standpoint. He didn't have any senior moments that I remember when he was president of the United States and facing all of this leftist nonsense about impeachment and this and that and the Russia hoax and everything we went through during the Trump administration. But put all of the feebleness aside, Joe Biden is horrible. He's a horrible president and he was a horrible senator and he's a horrible person. That's my opinion and I'm standing by it. From from what he does with little children to the dumb policy decisions he makes to how nasty he is to the lack of accountability. It's just incredible And I think the left is going to have a harder and harder and harder time defending him. The question is, what are they going to do? Because I'm looking, for example, I I, I want you to keep this in your memory because this is probably going to become relevant at some point. This is from April 25th this year by Politico. And here's the headline. Harris says she had key role in Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal decision, okay? So at some point when she gets asked about this, if she gets asked about this and denies it, you heard it here. Vice President Kamala Harris confirmed Sunday, this was back in April, that she was the last person in the room before President Biden made the decision to pull all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. This was during an interview with Dana Bash on CNN on State of the Union. Harris was asked about being the last person in the room regarding major decisions, something that Biden has said is important to him in his working relationship with the vice president. Harris confirmed that was the case regarding the move to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. 
There you have it. So when she denies it, we can just pull up that cut from CNN back in April. Now, let's go back to some of this audio because this is extraordinary stuff. Just a few days ago on Fox, there were a couple of Afghanistan war veterans on talking about their reaction to this decision to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan. Let's listen to some of these comments. This is cut three. What just makes me so mad about this is we have a man in the White House that couldn't predict this that told us just a week ago nothing like this would happen. We have a man in the White House, we have leaders of our country that could not see this happening. The entire country pretty much falling in a matter of weeks. That was not something they could see coming. And those are the people that are gonna keep us safe, that are in charge of our borders, that are in charge of a virus that's spreading across the country. The people that couldn't see this happening Or did they know and they just wanted to lie to us because Biden knew he would be the president that lost Afghanistan and he would rather do it before the midterms than after? I don't know. Only Biden can answer that question. Joe Biden pushed our withdrawal date back to September 11th for strictly political reasons. And why does that matter? Because it gave the Taliban the time and the space to consolidate and reorganize and plan an attack on Kabul. My men in Afghanistan bled the ground red. And for the last seven months, for the last seven months, I've watched generals, I mean, engage in Twitter fights with people, debate the merits of critical race theory on Capitol Hill. It seemed like our generals were more concerned with fighting Tucker Carlson than they were the Taliban. And, and we are seeing the tragic and disastrous consequences of that play on the battlefield right now. And to our soldiers, you did your job. You sacrificed. You fought. You gave the people of Afghanistan a shot for freedom. And, and it's important for the American people to hear this. It's time. We need to blame the suits for this tragic failure and not the boots. Well, here's what's really extraordinary. You had Jake Tapper over on CNN interviewing Secretary Blinken. And just going after him, Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And it was very interesting because Media Research Center commented on this. The president of, of Afghanistan reportedly fled the country. The flag of the United States was taken down at the embassy and secreted away with the ambassador. Throngs of people seen on video desperately trying to climb into the back of U.S. military cargo planes before takeoff with reports that the airport was under fire from the Taliban. That is the state President Biden left Afghanistan in, and Jake Tapper was out to hold him to account during his interview on State of the Union with Antony Blinken. And he came out of the gates on fire. He called out Biden and Blinken for pulling out of Afghanistan so hastily and ineptly and demanded to know how they got this so wrong. He also commented on the situation individually. Listen to this cut. This is cut four. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is watching a tragic foreign policy disaster unfold before our eyes. Weeks before the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the deadline for President Biden's complete withdrawal of U.S. service members, the Taliban are laying waste to all the gains in that country. Having seized much of Afghanistan, the Taliban are now at the gates of the capital city of Kabul. The representatives are meeting with leadership inside the Afghan presidential palace. The rapid crumbling of the country has caught the Biden White House flat-footed on Saturday after pulling out almost all of the 2,500 service members there when he took office. President Biden said he would deploy more than more U.S. troops, 5,000 now total, for the limited mission of getting Americans and others fleeing safely out of Kabul. Warning of a, quote, swift and strong U.S. response if the Taliban interfere. And with the constant thrum of helicopters overhead, sources tell CNN this morning that a total evacuation of Americans from our embassy in Kabul is well underway 
and should be completed by Tuesday. That is, of course, a sharp turnaround from six weeks ago when President Biden called it highly unlikely that the Taliban would overrun the country, an assessment that even at the time struck many experts in Biden's own administration as unrealistic. And now as American diplomats rush to shred embassy documents and escape, it seems shocking that President Biden could have been so wrong. Well, I I don't know why you're shocked. Is anybody who's thinking straight shocked that President Biden could get anything wrong? He gets everything wrong. What are you talking about? He got he got everything wrong, especially if, as Kamala Harris admitted back in April, she was the last person in the room to sign off on this. That should tell you something, shouldn't it? But you guys over at CNN were so concerned about Trump, 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 Trump. Oh, Trump is the worst. Trump is a dictator. Oh, it was an insurrection on January 6th. Oh, okay. Yeah, you don't care. Just as long as Biden gets in, he's unfit for office in so many ways. What do you care? How dare you get out of there? I I mean, I'm laughing at it in in a way because I think it's ironic that they're finally having to do some actual correct assessments of this administration against their will, no doubt. But good grief. You guys carried the water for this guy. You asked him no tough questions. You protected him at every turn while you went after Trump. And now you're going to feign some kind of horror that this just went so horribly wrong. We don't understand it. ABC News also had a similar reaction. This was John Carl with Martha Raddatz. Listen to this. Cut five. We're in Afghanistan just two months ago. And as you know, President Biden's top military advisors advised against a total withdrawal here. They did not want all U.S. forces out of there. They wanted to keep a force of about 3,500 to 4,000 U.S. personnel in Afghanistan uh, just to provide intelligence, to provide some security and to keep the Afghan forces on track. We don't know whether that would have made a difference, but I can tell you of the failures, John, that are so obvious at this point. The training mission of those Afghan forces, $83 billion worth, clearly failed. The negotiations with the Taliban clearly failed. And you also had a really massive intelligence failure here that the U.S. did not realize how quickly the Taliban could take over. And we have been there for 20 years. We know the Taliban. We have people on the ground. And yet the U.S. was caught unaware and completely off guard. Hmm. Again, very interesting that that would be the reaction of ABC News. Uh, If you didn't have the deep state so concerned with trespassing at the Trump rally in Washington in January and keeping those people jailed and talking about wokeness and talking about racism among white supremacists, maybe they could actually focus on things like intelligence accuracy on the ground in Afghanistan, a place where we have been for 20 years and they should have some pretty good sources there by now. But again, the Biden administration officials said in this piece that I was quoting from earlier on Politico that the U.S. has better intelligence and other enhanced capabilities to thwart any future terrorist plots against America that might emerge from Afghanistan. Color me skeptical. Color me skeptical because I've read The Looming Tower. You should read that book by Lawrence Wright talking about why 9-11 happened, the role that the Clinton administration played, the role that the failure of the FBI and the CIA had to to communicate with one another. It was botched. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying there were it was an inside job. What I'm saying is there was incredible failure 
on the part of the American government to secure the situation or to take out bin Laden when we could have. So go back to that. You can read that great book and learn more about it. It's just incredible. And the funny part is the New York Times points out Biden has often noted that he came to office with more foreign policy experience than any president in recent memory. Well, maybe we should find somebody less experienced. He told aides it was crucial they avoid the kind of scene that yielded the iconic photographs of Americans and Vietnamese scrambling up a ladder to a helicopter on the roof of the embassy in Saigon when it was frantically evacuated in 1975. And yet here we have the aerial photos of the helicopter over that roof there right next to the embassy. Fantastic. Incredible. It also says the aides thought they had the luxury of time because of intelligence assessments that wildly overestimated the capabilities of this Afghan army that disintegrated. I don't know how he's going to get out of this one, but he owns it. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We see a lot in the news these days about the problems surrounding mental illness. One mental health advocacy group reports, for example, that 43 million Americans suffer from mental illness and 10 million of those people have serious mental illness. Furthermore, people with serious mental illness account for a disproportionate share of suicides, homelessness, violence and incarceration. And did you know that most people suffering from mental health crises turn first for help, not to a doctor, but to somebody in pastoral care? Do most pastors really know how to handle that kind of situation? And what should you know if you're in pastoral care and you have someone come in with a serious mental illness? It's a good question. We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Matthew Stanford, CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston. And he is also an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He is out with a new book on the subject, Madness and Grace, a practical guide for pastoral care and serious mental illness. Illness. Dr. Stanford, great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. You bet. Now, I know this is a difficult subject. Obviously, if you're a pastor, you have no experience understanding anything, much of anything anyway, about serious mental illness. And someone walks in with that kind of a problem, you're kind of caught flat-footed, it would seem. Is this kind of a standard problem that you've seen across the board that people are asked to weigh in on serious mental illness issues that, that and they're just pastors and they're kind of going, what do I do? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you when surveyed pastors, typically 70 to 80 percent of them will say they don't feel qualified to recognize mental health problems in those that they counsel, uh, and less than 10 percent ever make a referral. Wow. But the data is very clear that uh, the same severity of 
uh, individual, same severity of illness uh, uh, in individuals that are seeking psychiatrists are in the individuals that are seeking out clergy first. Wow. Um, and so about 68% of people are more likely to engage a clergy first before a physician or a mental health care provider. So it's a real opportunity for the church to be a, a, an open front door to care for those who uh, otherwise probably would not get care. Oh, yeah. Well, now when we're talking about serious mental illness, what is the difference between serious mental illness and just mental illness? Yeah, that's a great question because there's really no such thing as a less serious mental illness or uh, it's okay to have this illness kind of thing. So serious mental illness means that the illness is severe enough that it impairs your functioning. Uh, And so, you know, you could be, it is possible to have anxiety or depression at a level uh, that you still can function relatively normally. You go to work, you maintain relationships, things like that. Uh, so you have a less intense. But in most instances, anxiety disorders uh, get to a level and, and depression gets to a level where it impairs your ability to maintain relationships or work or go to school. And so that's really the dividing line between what people think of as mental illness and serious mental illness. Yeah. Now, when I was quoting those statistics before from a mental health advocacy group, do those sound in line with what you've discovered about how many Americans actually suffer suffer from mental illness in general, or what are the numbers you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. It's about one in five uh, adults in the U.S. and one in five children, adolescents will have a mental, some mental illness in a given year, uh, which is an enormous number of people. And then around, you know, around 14 million or so uh, will have uh, adults will have a serious mental illness. So we're looking at an enormous number of people because just to kind of put that in context, you know, in the U.S., uh, 24 million adults and children have diabetes. So if you think about 14 million people with serious mental illness, I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. Well, it is. What, what are the causes of mental illness? Is it always biological in nature or physiological in nature? Because other people will talk about abuse victims who might have been triggered by what happened to them in their childhood and it, they later developed mental illness. But what, are the, what is the causation factor? Yeah, mental illnesses are always a combination of biology and environment. So every mental health problem is a result of both biological uh, aspects and has environmental aspects. Some are more biological than others. So say something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they have a much heavier biological component and kind of a lesser of the environmental, but it's still important. Whereas something like depression could be heavily biological, or it could be almost solely driven by the environment. And and you mentioned trauma victims, for instance. We certainly know that a child born with no, say, no predisposition for a mental health problem biologically, if they were abused, uh, you know, they could later manifest a mental health problem as a result of their abuse. So it's always a combination of the two, and depending on the type of illness you have will depend on which one is more significant. Right. Now, what would you say about differentiating between a serious mental illness as a psychiatrist might see that person versus someone who's just having circumstances in his life and it's a temporary problem? Because I think when you when you think of people in pastoral care or just the regular Christian, when you're running into somebody who says, I'm so depressed— Sometimes they're confused as to is that something with your serotonin or is that something that is induced by a circumstance in your life? How do you tell the difference? Yeah, I think, you you know, you, you just have to ask some pretty standard questions. I mean, first you have to ask them how long has this been going on? You know, did this just start last week or is this just a bad day? Because, you know, you don't diagnose somebody with a mental health problem unless it, there's a, you know, a significant, you know, a relatively long period of time, two weeks, a month, it's gone on where this has kind of been unchanging. The second question has to do with the depth of it. There's one thing 
about being sad, for instance. There's a whole other thing of, of being so sad that nothing would cheer you up or feeling hopeless or worthless. So kind of getting a sense of the intensity or the depth of the illness. And then the third thing is what I mentioned before, and that is how is it affecting your functioning? Uh, are you able to maintain relationships? Has this affected your relationships? Are you able to go to work? Are you able to go to school? If it's affecting some sphere of your life, then the level of distress that you're dealing with is significant enough that you probably need to see a mental health care provider. Right. That makes total sense. Now, now, one of the things that you point out in your book, which I want to pivot to for a minute, is the state of our mental health care system, you say, is badly broken. And I think we can verify that. It's reported a lot in the news that that's, that's a big problem. Why is that so significant for people to understand in the church that, you know, a lot of people fall through the cracks and it would seem a good amount of the reason for that is because the healthcare system for mentally ill people is broken, as you say. Absolutely. I think, you know, most people in the United States do not realize that a majority of the people with mental health problems in this country never receive any treatment. Mm. So, I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. Imagine if I said a majority of people with cancer never received any treatment in the United States. So a majority of people with mental health problems never receive any care. Uh, and, you know, that's, that is significant. And it's, it's primarily, you know, well, I should say this, it's a number of different problems. One is we don't have a real continuum of care in mental health care. Another is that Insurance barely reimburses for mental health problems, and so it's difficult to keep, uh, you know, practices in business. We don't have very many mental health care providers. For instance, in the United States today, we have less than 100,000 psychiatric beds in the entire United States. Oh, boy. Uh, and so, you know, and we were already, a minute ago, we were talking about tens of millions of people with illness, and we have less than 100,000 beds uh, for those individuals if they go into crisis. So the system is, it's really more than, I mean, I, I say badly broken. It's more than badly broken. It really almost doesn't exist. It's a set of kind of fragmented resources that are very difficult to access. And and the primary, the two primary reasons people don't access is because of finances and stigma. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people just simply are not willing to admit they have a mental health care problem because of the shame and stigma that go along with it. Well, and that would explain why many people who might be suffering would instead say, I'll go to the pastor. He's not going to charge me anything. <laughs> that would Absolutely. Be- <laughs> There's a church on every corner and those people are supposed to care for you. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that when people struggle with these problems, they ask the big questions about do I have value uh, you know, do people really care about me? And, and I think, you know, where else to go to get those answers than a faith community? Yeah, well, and going back to what I had said at the outset, we know, for example, every time the homelessness problem is talked about, there's always a discussion about, well, a lot of these people are, are mentally ill and they don't have the money to stay in the system. I mean, that that also affects society at another level. When you're not treating people with mental illness, it affects the whole community. Oh, no, absolutely. At, at least 30% of the homeless have a serious mental illness. If you throw in substance use and other problems, you're looking at over 50%. But, you know, I've said it a, a million times in presentations I've given, and if, if you wanted to completely alter our society and uh, not, not only, you know, from a human capital perspective, but economically – deal with mental health because it affects it affects education, it affects criminal justice, it affects homelessness, it affects economics. I mean, it affects every aspect of society. And if we were to take care of our mental health issues, uh, we would, you know, the, the trillions of dollars that we're just kind of throwing out into the street every week trying to take care of this uh, would be able to go into something better, perhaps education or something like that. But this is a significant problem, yet it's something we almost never talk about. Well, that's right. We're going to pause for a short break. We'll come back with Dr. Matthew Stanford, author of Madness and Grace. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. 
many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Help moms choose life with Preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you along and great to have with us Dr. Matthew Stanford, author of Madness and Grace, A Practical Guide for Pastoral Care and Serious Mental Illness. And you were describing before the break, Dr. Stanford, the extent of the problem that we have in the United States where we have millions of people suffering from mental illness. And most of them, when they have any indication that there's a problem, will go to somebody like a pastor or a minister or some, somebody in pastoral care somewhere for help. And yet, as you've mentioned, a lot of pastors say, I'm not really sure I know how to handle this, where, how would you advise a pastor if somebody comes in and is mentally ill and says, pastor, can you help me? Where do you start? Well, I think, you know, I, I think what you have to do is you, you have to do a little bit of kind of your due diligence before they show up. You know, I think you have to build some relationships with mental health care providers in the community. Um, here, you know, I run the Hope and Healing Center in Houston and we have a clinic and we make referrals as well. I won't refer to anyone that I don't know. I mean, we vet all of the individuals that we refer to. So a pastor should do the same thing. He or she should develop some relationships in the community of psychiatrists and therapists that they, they feel comfortable referring to. So when that person comes in and they recognize that it's a mental health problem, uh, they can say, hey, you know, I'd like you to hook you up uh, with this individual that I work with, you know, I, and we're going to work collaboratively uh, to, to help you move forward. But also, I, I think the pastor needs to make sure they don't minimize what they have, what they bring to the table. Uh, you know, we use a faith-based approach to care here, and I think that's very important that a person's spiritual life is also involved in uh, their recovery and in their treatment. So, you know, the pa- pastoral care, the pastoral counseling that's offered through the church, the pastoral support is tremendously important. And I think a third thing uh, that, a, that a pastor can do is make sure that his church has uh, support uh, systems in place, like support groups 
or lay counselors or pastoral care individuals that can walk along with somebody. So it isn't all on the back of the, pa- of the clergy, but the cl- congregation can get involved in helping this individual. And also, don't forget the family. Make sure you have support for the family, because it's not always about the person that just is ill. It's about their entire family. That's great. Now, for example, you might have a church that's very small in a rural area, and that pastor would say, I want to help this man who came in who's clearly something is really off, but we don't have very many resources here where we are, and we certainly don't have enough people in the church to offer the kind of support that this person needs. What do I do? Well, I think, number one, I think you'd be surprised how how little makes a difference. I think that, you know, just having somebody that can check on them and help them with their uh, with some of the things they might be dealing with or with their family. Uh, I also would say that, you know, don't forget that, uh, you know, we offer a hope that, tra- that transcends circumstances through the church, and so making sure that they're, that they're getting spiritual guidance and spiritual comfort. But I would say take advantage of, you know, what has is, what is the pandemic taught us, and that is that the technology can can bring us all together when we're not able to be together. And that is there are lots of opportunities uh, to receive uh, mental health treatment now virtually, uh, and so regardless of the state you're in, or you know, you can be in a very rural county, uh, there are going to be mental health care providers and mental health care uh, organizations in your state that are offering services virtually. Uh, and the church may pay for that, or they may just have the individual um, uh, pay for that through their insurance or whatever, but, but just make the way easier for that individual. If, if that, that, maybe that's your referral list that you've checked out ahead of time. You know, here are three virtual options for you to connect that you can do right from your home. That's good. That's really good to know. Good, good advice there. Well, one of the interesting parts of your book, and it's all interesting, but there was a section, a chapter that you wrote about religious and spiritual factors relating to, you know, relationships that are forged when somebody is trying to get some help for a serious mental illness. And you mentioned this category of hyper-religiosity. Now, this may be, you know, for, for Christians going, wait wait a minute, how, do, how does that affect mental illness? Can you talk a little bit about, for example, I think you gave the uh, example of a young man who was taking a particular drug and he thought God was talking to him and these sorts of things. But how common do we see religious delusions, hallucinations and scrupulosity, as you mentioned? What, what are those things? Yeah, you know, religious delusions are actually the most common delusion for people that are having uh, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Uh, or some others. And scrupulosity is, uh, is, is an anxiety-related phenomenon where a person believes they have to practice certain religious rituals or actions over and over or something bad will happen, kind of like an OCD mm. type of phenomenon. But religious delusions are extremely common in psychotic disorder clients. Uh, and, you know, it's, it can be very scary for people of faith because uh, these people uh, will even more likely approach churches and they feel like they're hearing from God or they, they have special knowledge from God or they're seeing visions or uh, things that individuals who don't have psychotic disorders might say if they're having spiritual experiences. And so, you know, I think what's important is you, you're able to differentiate what's, uh, you know, kind of normal religiosity versus hyper-religiosity. Hyper-religiosity is always uh, outside of the, the norms of a faith tradition. So, you know, I, you know, maybe I come from a faith tradition where people commonly say that they're hearing from God, but uh, when the individual says they're hearing from God, they're literally hearing from God in an audible voice, or they're right. hearing they're hearing from God in ways that would be outside of that faith tradition or extreme. Another thing is is that hyper religiosity never brings comfort 
or peace to the individual. It always brings kind of anxiety and fear and concern because things have to be done or bad things are going to happen or you know, those. There and so there's no. You know, there's not this idea that this this mystical or religious experience is causing them to be closer to God and more comforted. It's just the opposite. Uh, and so when you see that, when you see that kind of disruption, then you know that that's hyper-religiosity. The other thing is it's, it follows along with the symptoms of the disorder. When the person is not doing well is when they have the hyper-religious symptoms, and when they are doing well, they go back to their normal faith. Uh, and so it, it's not something to be afraid of. In fact, it's a, it can be a very obvious sign. And the final thing I would say is this. It's also another great opportunity for the church because a lot of times when people are struggling with these symptoms, they, don't, they may or may not recognize that they're actually ill, but it does open a door for them to want to go talk to a pastor. Uh, I've actually had people come and talk to me about their hyper-religious symptoms when they refused to go and talk to anyone about their mental health problems, which they didn't think they had. Hmm. So it gives a pastor an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, I'll sit down and talk to you about God. I, that's what we do all day here. And, and begin to form that relationship, and out of that relationship, you can move them towards care. Well, but it would seem then you'd need to be very, very discerning on whether or not somebody coming in and exhibiting those sorts of symptoms needs to be addressed theologically, or if you should be looking at them as, wait a minute, there's something deeper going on here uh, that is related to mental health. No, I agree. Absolutely. And, and again, I think if you just kind of follow those, those few little rules of thumb, you know, look at the faith tradition this person comes from. Is this consistent or outside that? Is, right. this, a, is this an affirming kind of religious experience they're having or not? Uh, and then, you know, how is it affecting, again, back to those, those spheres of life? How is it affecting their relationships, their work, things like that? And, and I think it's, you know, it becomes a little bit more clear that it's, it's beyond normal religiosity uh, than, uh, and there's really, obviously there's nothing wrong with religiosity, and, and I'm a person of faith, and you're a person of faith. Yep. Uh, it's just these are extreme. And I would say one other thing. I, you know, I, I'm sure they exist, but I have never encountered a client who had hyper-religiosity that was not a person of faith themselves. Hmm. That, that really what you're seeing is just a bending of their faith by their illness. Uh, it, it, it's a legitimate seeking of God. It's just it's been bent by the illness itself. That's very interesting. And, and you also give some really good guidelines, I think, on how those in pastoral care can communicate with people who come to them with mental illness. What would be some of your tips? Yeah, I think, you know, we're kind of, we kind of teach each other that the way we're supposed to interact with one another, particularly when we're in conflict or we disagree, is that we're supposed to reason in some way with one another. And more often than not, that's I'm going to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. But that doesn't work with a person who is having some kind of cognitive impairment because of their mental health problem. They're not thinking straight. They're having odd thoughts, things like that. So what we need to do is really a much more you know, kind of biblical thing, and that is we need to kind of connect with them on an emotional level, kind of a heart level. Right. So if somebody is presenting to you, let's say that hyper-religious guy comes in and he's very, you know, he's very nervous and upset because he's gotten this revelation from God and he has to do all these things or something bad's going to happen, uh, instead of trying to convince him that he's not right, well, what you're saying isn't consistent with the Bible, look right here, blah, 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 what you might want us to do is connect with him through the emotion that he's expressing. He's expressing fear. Uh, and so, 
you know, I would be very concerned as well if I thought this were going to happen. I would be, you know, those types of things. And as you begin to connect with the person on an emotional level, you'll find that it kind of de-escalates the situation, it calms them, and it does then give you an opportunity to begin to talk through some of the situations. Well, really good advice. There's a lot of good advice in this book, Madness and Grace, A Practical Guide for Pastoral Care in Serious Mental Illness by Dr. Matthew Stanford, who is CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston. So good to talk to you about these things, Dr. Stanford. Wonderful book, and it was so nice to have you here. Thank you again. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care and God bless. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We hope that you will tune in again next time. We'll look forward to it. God bless.